Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Greg Friedman of Peachtree Hospitality. He's the CEO. This was a really cool conversation because this guy has built his company up from basically a family office to a company that has managed over two and a half billion dollars worth of equity and done over nine billion dollars worth of deals. They are doing everything from debt to equity, a management company, a development company. It was a really, really, really fun conversation learning how he built the company, when he meets with his team, what investments they're making, why he's doing an investment committee meeting on a Friday. Please enjoy the conversation today with Greg Friedman. All right, Greg. So I thought a cool place to start would be looking back on founding Peachtree and coming into that business. Can you give us the story, but explain it in the context of real estate cycles and pivot points? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, obviously started the company, co-founded it back in 2007. So we have made a lot of pivots over time and and hit you know several different economic cycles, uh, and so been through you know just a lot of different disruptions and you know different things that have happened that really shaped you know what Peachtree is today. But when we originally started the organization, it was really set up more as a you know personal investment vehicle for myself, for my partner Matul, and uh, originally we were going to go out and acquire and develop hotels. You know we didn't have any desire necessarily to to operate hotels. Or to lend hotels, or to lend or invest in other you know commercial real estate assets, but you know it was truly going to be a you know almost like a small family office focused on the hospitality space. We quickly pivoted because we hit the great financial crisis between 2007 to 2009. We had made several investments on the equity side where we went out and acquired and developed assets, and we quickly realized you know with the great financial crisis that we're going to have to get very focused on playing defense. Um, So we ended up taking the operational side in-house and setting up our operating platform, which is, you know, PHM today. And we ended up also making another pivot in the sense that we brought in a a third partner, Jutton Desai, as part of our platform and really shifted our focus in 2009 to really go take advantage of what the great financial crisis had brought us with that whole entire dislocation around the credit markets. So we were you know, going out and buying a lot of debt from different financial institutions that were looking to delever their exposure to commercial real estate, more focused towards hospitality in our regards. We went out and bought a bunch of hotel first mortgage loans 
you know, we even bought a lot of uh, first mortgage loans secured by other commercial real estate assets. And we continue to acquire and develop hotel assets. And as an organization, we end up hitting several other pivots in the sense that in 2012, we launched Stonehill, our lending platform, because we were so successful at buying debt positions from you know 2009 to tw- 2012. And as the debt market started normalizing out, we started getting calls from a lot of groups, a lot of ho- hotel owners, a lot of you know other commercial real estate owners that were calling looking for traditional first mortgage debt in order to refinance or recapitalize existing assets or even acquisition financing. So we launched Stonehill to be our direct lending platform in 2012. And then 2014 as an organization, you know, we really redefined what we were doing because up until 2014, we were really an owner operator of assets. You know, we had the lending platform, but we weren't necessarily, you know, an investment platform or a private equity shop. And we really redefined our focus in 20, in 2014, where we set up our really us as an investment platform. We really institutionalized what we were doing because most of the capital we were investing was friends and family. And we started to invest capital outside of just friends and family in 2014. And you know, since then, we've continued to successfully grow the business as an investment platform. And, and then we had great years from 2014 to 2019, where we made a lot of investments on the equity side, where we were developing and acquiring hotels. And we made a lot of investments on the debt side, where we were financing groups to go out and acquire, develop, recapitalize hotel assets, as well as other commercial real estate assets. But in 2020, we got hit with the pandemic, which unfortunately everyone was impacted by the pandemic, you know, across the hospitality space, as well as the commercial real estate space. Everyone, unfortunately, not everyone, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, not everyone was impacted the same. Hospitality was probably the hardest hit asset class. And we viewed that as a huge opportunity. So we went out and became one of the biggest buyers of debt. So we took advantage of that debt buying opportunity and we continue to buy and develop hotels through the pandemic. But as you can see, as I mentioned all this, you know, we've always been very opportunistic and willing to pivot as an organization. And those pivots have allowed us, you know, and being decisive at the right time has allowed us to grow our organization from in 2010, we had caught about 20 million of equity under management across probably about 60 million of assets. And today we have over two and a half billion of equity under management across about 6 billion or 7 billion of assets. So we've been able to grow pretty nicely over the last 12, 13 years. What about hospitality as an asset class was intriguing for you to want to make that your life's work and the purpose of founding Peachtree? Yeah. So, you know, in regards to hospitality, I would say the reason we chose the hospitality asset class was really just our familiarity, our understanding. Personally, grew up around the hospitality industry. So I was very comfortable investing just from a personal perspective, being around the hospitality industry. I think hotels in general are very attractive asset class to invest along, just given they trade at higher cap rates in general. So you have the ability to drive great returns. But you know, personally, I've been around the business, professionally grew up around the business. And that that was the biggest attraction that I had towards the hospitality space personally. And my my two other partners, you know, very similar where they personally grew up in families that were in the hospitality business or the hotel business. But then the professionally, you know, all three of us as we graduated college, 
we were all professionally in careers that were centered around the hospitality investment side or lending side or asset management side. And so it was really what we knew. But as I look here today, I probably have a huge appreciation for the hospitality industry just because I do think as you look at it as a asset class across the commercial real estate space, hospitality does carry a lot of risk as an investment. But on the other side of the equation, it does drive the ability, given the fact that we trade at higher cap rates, given that there's a lot of operational leverage in our space, there's the ability to really drive great returns if you know how to actively asset manage, as well as if you're good at not only asset managing, but being able to operate these assets, because there is a combination of the real estate side, as well as the operational and asset management side of the business. I always wonder, building up a real estate private equity firm is hard enough. The management side of the business is so hard. Every other asset class seems easy to the kind of stuff that we do. But I wonder if you've ever felt capped by the amount of capital you can raise for hospitality, and if you've ever kind of had the urge to expand into other asset classes now that you have this infrastructure and a machine that knows how to do real estate. Yeah. So I do think there's a limitation to how much you can raise across hospitality in general. I think part of it is just the deal flow within hospitality. It's obviously, I think most investors view hospitality as part of the commercial real estate landscape, and they're going to allocate capital across the different food groups or different property types. And hospitality tends to get a lower allocation than some of the other property types. And for instance, if you look at like multifamily, industrial, clearly they were huge winners during the pandemic. And they've, over the last 10 years, have gotten a larger allocation of capital versus hospitality and office. So I do think there is a limitation. There's a lot of investors that they're hesitant to invest in hospitality, just given their lack of understanding of our asset class, given the operational side of the business, which they view as a challenge. I view as a huge opportunity from my perspective. Just given the fact that if you're good at operating, you can drive great returns. I mean, you can take advantage of buying assets that are misoperated. But unfortunately, a lot of outside investors, when I say outside investors, you know, investors outside of our industry have a different view. So there are definitely headwinds when um, trying to see how much capital you can bring into our industry. But on the other side of the equation, us as a firm, we're obviously very focused towards the hospitality space, but we also have leveraged the infrastructure that we have to invest outside of hospitality. So today, call it about 85 to 90% of our assets under management are hospitality driven, but we do have you know close to 15% of our assets under management that are non-hospitality. So we have a lot of credit investments. And when I say credit, these are you know first mortgage investments that we've either acquired or originated against all commercial property types. So we've financed everything from multifamily development projects to industrial to um, we've actually financed, you know, we're one of the larger lenders within the, the mall space where we finance a lot of groups that are buying these malls from some of the larger operators and redeveloping those malls into other use or optimizing, you know, what's, what's there at that mall. And so, We've been very successful in that trade as well. So we've done a lot of stuff outside the hospitality industry, but hospitality is a big part of our ecosystem. But there's no question, you look across the public REIT 
landscape, the hospitality REITs traditionally tend to be on the smaller side of some of the size and the bill. When you look across the different types of REITs, most hotel REITs are much smaller than some of the other property types. How important was it to be vertically integrated once you got the company off the ground, adding in the management component? Yeah, it's as I look here today, I think it's a big part of our story because it does give us that 360 degree view of the marketplace. So it gives us a huge competitive advantage. So because we do own, operate, develop, blend, so we can we have a lot of great data. We have a lot of insight into what's happening in the market, into trends. We're able to see what's happening in a lot of cases before other investors or other competitors can see, just given the fact that we are vertically integrated and we invest up and down the capital stack. When we started the firm, we did it more as a defensive mechanism because originally when we started, obviously we didn't have operations, but we quickly brought it in because of the great financial crisis. And so we had brought the operational side in and brought started to bring the lending side in more as an opportunistic play down the road. But it's as I sit here now, I think it's a big part of our story. It's a big reason why we have a huge competitive advantage in the marketplace. If I was starting up a new platform today, I, I wouldn't say you need to be vertically integrated because there are a lot of great companies out there that do offer third-party operational services. There's a lot of great companies out there that you could contract with on the development side or construction side. And there's a lot of other groups out there that have the expertise on the lending side as well. So there's no question you could do a lot of partnership with different organizations that provide some of the same services that we do in-house. But because we have built the infrastructure, it has it has really been a big part of the reason we have been successful and it continues to be a big part of our ecosystem as we continue to grow into other asset classes as well. Whenever I talk to vertically integrated guys like yours or mine, we're always like, yeah, this is our competitive edge. This is why we're so good. And then when you talk to the other guys, they're like, yeah, we like talking to other managers and and we like spreading it around and you know, we can asset manage everyone really well. I wonder, have you ever had any experiences where you sometimes wish you had less platforms? It's a great question. We, we talk about it all the time because there's no question, no question there's a lot of challenges having you know more infrastructure and there's challenges having less in- infrastructure too. And a lot of that's managing all the human talent that you have internally is you know sometimes you know the challenge but I, I think it's from my standpoint you know really that edge of being able to invest up and down the capital stack so you have so much insight into what is ha- truly happening at any given time because like take today's marketplace is a perfect example you know the mar- transaction market is pretty much shut down for the most part across you know most commercial real estate property types hotels included transaction markets down well over 50% for pretty much all property types. Some are down over 80%. And so you're not seeing a lot of things trade. So it's hard to get a good sense of where are real values. But because we're so active on the lending side, we feel like we have really good insight to where some of the underlying values of these assets, you know, where potentially they're going to end up settling once the market settles out. But there's obviously a huge gap in pricing and that gap in pricing 
is because you know there's huge pricing discovery but because we have that you know using it as an example that gives us a lot of conviction when going out and making investments and no differently than during the pandemic we were very early into going out and buying debt to a point where a lot of people thought you know a lot of people were surprised back in the call it the summer of 2020 that we were as active as we were in the summer of 2020 towards the end of the third quarter of 2020 fourth quarter of 2020 that we were so active in buying debt and uh, a lot of organizations were just totally taken back that we were that aggressive and that trade actually worked out really well for us but part of the reason we had that conviction is because we had that vertical integration and we could sort of see the recovery play what was happening because back then people were like questioning if hospitality was ever going to recover but we were seeing what was happening real time on the demand side for lodging and so we felt like we had a pretty good feel for where things would settle once the market normalized back out and that allowed us to have that conviction in the trade of buying debt and so forth so i i do sometimes think it's overstated that vertical integration the advantage but I think the fact that you take the vertical integration with the fact that we have that ability to pivot across the capital stack, I think that combination becomes a huge advantage for us, at least. I want to hang on the debt side a little bit because I think for other people in real estate, it's going to be a big opportunity. We bought one note during COVID. The problem was the return was good, but we got paid off too soon, so the multiple sucked. How have you found to make money buying debt and also to capitalize that purchase very quickly in periods of distress if you don't already have some sort of a fund lined up and presumably you're not using all equity to get the leverage? So how does that process work for you in times of pain? Yeah. So during the great financial crisis, we bought you know over 40 hotel loans, bought well over a dozen non-hotel first mortgage loans. And then during COVID, we bought over 180 loans, first mortgage loans. So we've, I would say those two time periods, using them as examples, you know, was totally different what was happening and how the trades were broke down. But using the pandemic, that was the biggest risk is you're going to get paid off too soon. And, and it goes back to, you know, we saw a bunch of loans we could acquire during the pandemic, but we had that sort of sneaky suspicion that the loan was going to pay off relatively quick. So it really came down to what type of discount we were getting on the note purchase and you know solving for our yield and maturity. Fortunately for us, we were doing this in a vehicle that allowed for recyclability of capital. So equity multiple, although it's always meaningful at some level, was less concerning because we knew if we did get paid off, too soon, that was fine as long as we got not only positive returns, but we obviously you know covered transaction expense, got positive returns, and got a little bit of equity multiple. We could quickly redeploy into other purchases because we had a pretty stout pipeline in the middle of the pandemic. So we always thought about it, but it's it, you know there's no question it's hard to capitalize that trade on a one-off basis. You really it's more efficiently done and more of a fund type setting or investment vehicle type setting where you have out you know you have a capital or committed capital that you can work off of in a lot of cases when they're going back to the great financial crisis you are executing that trade like most of the loans we bought we bought with no leverage i would say 90 percent of the loans we bought with no leverage i would say most of the loans we bought in 2020 we bought with no leverage as well we paid all cash 
And then we lever, we back levered our note purchases in the first quarter of 2021. And so having that flexibility uh, and having that capital base to, to really get aggressive when the trade is there, that's, that's really what you need to execute on the no trade side. Cause usually when the no trade side is very accretive and when the no trade side is very interesting, usually that means leverage back leverage credit, you know, the availability of credit is pretty thin in the marketplace. And so you gotta be in a position in most cases to close all cash. And so that is going to potentially dilute your ability to drive equity multiple, but you got to be very disciplined too. And just making sure you're not going out and paying because unfortunately a lot of groups will go in and pay par for a loan, which works. If you know, you have a pathway to the, you know, if your goal is to get to the real estate, it could definitely work. But if your goal is to restructure, which when we buy loans, we buy loans with the idea of restructuring those loans. And that the other part of your question, by us restructuring the loan, that allows us because we engage with the borrower to keep, we want to keep the loan on our books as long as we can. You know, ideally, we'd like to keep the loan on our books for about two to four years when we buy these loans. And so usually we're restructuring the loan to hopefully keep the borrower engaged, you know, working through any type of technical defaults, if it's coverage covenants and things like that. And then working to, if the loan has matured or is maturing within the next, you know, 12, 18 months, usually we're working with them to try to set up some type of extensions and so forth. So when you're doing these deals, you have to act really quickly. I'm curious to know what you said to your investment guys or what you were thinking about because you couldn't have executed on all those transactions if you were doing like a 30-day process and peeling back every single layer of diligence. Like you had to go with some gut instinct on that. So what did those metrics look like to you? And kind of what was that gut instinct that allowed you to close quickly and then think about it later and maybe syndicate it out or go do some note-on-note financing once you already closed the deal? Yeah. So we, we would have to close when we buy loans especially going back to you know the not only the great financial crisis but going back to the pandemic we typically from the time we signed a psa or agreed to an loi to the time we closed was usually on average probably about 15 days some cases less and you know some cases a little bit more so you've got about 15 days to get everything put together and so in that process we're not only doing legal due diligence like title searches reading through all the loan documents we're actually going through and we have part of our team on the investment side, we're underwriting each asset and we're underwriting it as a, if we were the owner of the asset and seeing how the value sizes up. And we're also underwriting the asset from just a, from a pure loan perspective and looking at the yields to maturity, the yields, if we have to end up extending out the loan longer or getting paid off shorter or whatever the case is. So we run all these different scenarios internally and then most of the loans that we bought, you know, we bought these in portfolios. So on average, we were buying probably call it about 10 to 15 loans at a time. And so we would have to effectively work around the clock for 10 to 15 days each time, you know, we were executing on one of these LOIs or contracts with the, with the financial institutions. In most cases, these were publicly traded banks during the great financial crisis, as well as the pandemic. And so we would have to move super quick. It was a very intense underwriting, but to your point, there is a piece of gut to it all. And fortunately, we touch so many different markets 
A lot of it is looking at your basis, you know, the brand, the, the sponsors or the borrowers, knowing, you know, what's happening there. And you're just having to make a very quick, educated decision based on those factors. And you're looking at what you expect the hotel to do, you know, in the future. But, you know, when you're buying loans, you're usually buying them in like an economic disruption period, like during the great financial crisis pandemic, or even you could argue today we're going through a, a disruption. It's very hard to predict future performance. And so you do have to use a lot of gut and just intuition based on, you know, knowledge of these submarkets and knowledge of the, how the borrowers and sponsors and operators have performed previously. What were some of the, whether it was a mistake or a tactic that you used during the pandemic, whether it was a pref equity investment or a note purchase that you kind of wrote down and were like, yeah, next cycle, or maybe we're going into that now, I'm not going to do that again, or I'm going to make sure that we definitely focus on this specific item. Yeah. I mean, there, there's lessons. There's no question. There's lots of lessons along the way that we've learned. I feel like most of them we've captured going back to the great financial crisis because that was a huge learning opportunity because we were able to, because every time we buy loans, and that's probably a big part of our story is that we were able to, you know, as an organization, we bought so many loans during the great financial crisis. You could learn so many lessons from some of our peers. And because as you sat down and restructured a lot of these loans, they would tell you why they ended up where they ended up at. And you learn lessons along the way. I think the biggest lessons I've learned is just staying disciplined. I think a good example, I'm looking at what, what we're going through today. I think everyone got so blinded by low interest rates and you know, and interest rates have obviously grown tremendously. You look at the 10-year treasury, I mean, we're probably 150, 200 basis points to where we've been on average. When you look back to 2010 to 2019, take the average 10-year treasury, we're 150, 200 basis points above that right now. We got so used to having lower interest rates and no one took a step back and really shocked and really shocked the rates. And you know, how did these assets perform in a higher interest rate environment? And we are, as an industry, we're very fortunate because hotels has a lot more risk premium spread. But, you know, I look across some of the other asset classes or property types right now, like multifamily. I mean, they're going through a lot of pain. If you have a loan that's maturing, if you bought an asset that, you know, where you had a floating rate loan, that's the cap is expiring or a loan that's maturing, you bought the asset over the last several years, there's a very good chance you're either in negative leverage or heading towards negative leverage with where interest rates are today. And I think, you know, I think we just got too comfortable with that lower interest rate environment. But more importantly, I think it's staying disciplined to your underwriting. It's easy to fall into the trap of a, you know, in the middle of the going back to 2021 or 2022, where you see, you know, all this money being all this liquidity in the market and the expectations that there's, we're just going to continue to have the ability to, you know, drive rental rates or drive just performance because there's always going to be uh, you know there's always going to be something that's going to cause economic disruption so you've just got to be very disciplined in how you underwrite the performance long term you've got to and probably the biggest reason i see groups get into trouble is the debt side you got to have very flexible you got to debt you got to have a really good lending partner that understands the industry you're in. So if it's the hospitality industry or any type of property type, so that 
when you do hit these, because when times are good and the property's doing well, you know, all is good no matter, and you want the cheapest cost of capital. But when you end up in a, end up in a market like today, or you end up in a market like during the pandemic, or even during the GFC, you really need someone that understands your business model. And you also need to be in a, at a leverage position where you can sustain through it because a lot of times people take on too much leverage and that's usually the downfall. It's very rare someone makes a bad investment decision from a qualitative perspective, meaning that they take a bad market. In most cases, people are good about picking the right location, the right you know, market to be in. It's usually the balance sheet side that gets them into trouble. So being in all the different areas of debt, how do you manage your reputation and perception? Because if you're potentially buying notes, having to restructure with borrowers, maybe that goes good or bad, but then you're also originating notes and people are evaluating who they want to do business with. How do you make sure that your firm has staying power in that type of environment when you're sometimes on various parts of the same or similar trade? It can be challenging at times. I think we've done a great job at it though. And I think the biggest way to be, to to do a great job at it and what we've done as an organization is, is being very fair. If it's loans that we originate, if it's loans that we buy, our goal is to create win-win equitable solutions. So we, you know, we're very big on that part of it, but it's also, we have different teams executing different parts of our business. And, you know, our goal is to be a, be a, a bridge to the other side. So when we're buying loans, we're looking to be a bridge through whatever economic disruption period of time we're going through until we can get to a period where the market normalizes back out to allow the borrowers or the sponsors to be able to pay us off. And if we're originating loans, we're typically providing shorter term bridge loans. When I say shorter term, like these are typically called two to five year loans where someone's going to execute on their business plan and they're going to find a more long-term permanent lender and we're working with them to get them to that place. And then ultimately, given the fact that we're out acquiring and developing hotels ourselves on the equity side, we really understand hotels and commercial real estate. So that gives us the ability to be very thoughtful in how we structure these loans that we're making and debt instruments so that we can structure something where the borrower can be successful. And so at least in our eyes, they should be successful as long as they can, you know, execute their business plan as they as they've told us that they can do. So it's it's really truly, I think it's being fair, reasonable, being thoughtful, and trying to and always doing right and doing, you know, what's right. Unfortunately, everything's not going to be successful, right? Like there's going to be situations that pop up where someone's going to have, you know, we're going to have you know, at times we're unsuccessful at executing our business plans. Sometimes we're going to have borrowers that are unsuccessful at executing their business plans. And it's at those moments of time where, or we're going to hit even economic disruptions like a pandemic, but it's at those moments of time where real, you know, I would say relationships really can take a leap forward because it's how everyone behaves and the temperament and is sitting down and trying to work through solutions that are that makes sense for all parties. And it's how you deal with those situations, I think, that that make us great as an investor on the equity or debt side. I think that's what's allowed us to, in a lot of cases, grow really strong relationships with a lot of different sponsors that we work with on the lending side, or even where we've done a lot of JV equity with different groups and so forth. 
How much of having a debt and equity platform is also just about managing your P&L and not always taking the risk on the equity side and just smoothing things out a little bit? Because I can imagine just doing debt is probably a little boring like for deal people. So you got to mix in the equity, but it does provide a nice baseline. Yeah. So, I mean, we have literally two separate teams. I mean, we're all in the same, um, we have two floors of the office building we're in and we have two different teams on different sides of the building that are executing. One's executing the equity side of the business. One's executing the debt side of the business. And those individuals that you know run those teams and the individuals in those teams have a lot of passion for what they do. So it, it's it's truly bifurcated or separated. But then you know, for us as an organization, it's not necessarily something we've done for the P and L side. It's more it's more just from a standpoint that we saw the opportunity. And we've done a lot of other things within hospitality or, you know, more importantly, outside of hospitality, because we've just seen the opportunity and seen the inefficiency in that trade or inefficiency in that marketplace where we felt like we could bring value. And so that's more the reason we've done these different things across our organization. For instance, you know, we own a business that does stuff in the resi space where we got and buy larger tracts of land that we entitle in subdivisions. We own a business that does a lot within the film industry where we actually finance some of the movie production facilities, but we've also financed the production of films. So, which is a totally different, different business and how that business finances those films is pretty unique as well. It's relatively, I would say, lower risk than a lot of people even appreciate or understand, but that business has been successful as well. We also have our C-PACE commercial property assessed clean energy program, which we're one of the largest originators of of doing those C-PACE loans. And part of the reason we launched that business is we saw the opportunity, so, you know, saw the inefficiencies across some of the other investors or lenders in that space. And that's been a very successful program for us as well. So it's, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we're not out there to, to for profit because we are, we're a for-profit business, right? And we're not a nonprofit organization, but it's, I would say the bigger reason why we have these different platforms or different strategies is because we see the opportunity and we see the inefficiency that's in that opportunity and we can go identify it and, you know, really drive good outcomes for our platform. And that's why we ultimately do it. I want to talk a little bit about the transition from call it a family office, family enterprise style to an institutional private equity firm. A lot of people aren't able to make that jump. Like what were the things that you did that enabled you to actually do that? Sure. So it's, I would say organizationally, we had to shift our mindset to a certain degree because, you know, as a smaller family office, you tend to be a little bit looser. You tend to have a, you know, you're a little bit, can be a little bit more nimble at times. And you want to maintain that nimbleness to a certain degree, even as you institutionalize your process, because that's part of it. You know, that's a big advantage you have as well. But you do have to change up the way you operate as you become more institutional in your approach. And so, you know, part of it's been the talent we brought in internally. Part of it's, I would say, process driven, you know, the processes and the check downs that we go in order to make a new investment, because there was a, a time period you know, going back 10 years ago, if I say, for instance, I liked an asset and I walked it, you know, I could just offer on the spot and, and make that decision. 
now today, as I sit here, you know, I have a voice, but you know, we have you know, seven different people in our investment committee and we all sit down once a week on every Friday to make decisions on you know, new investments, you know, new loans we're going to make and so forth. So we have to go through that committee process. And that's part of the challenge of being more institutional is that you've got to have more, you got to be more process driven. You got to be more thoughtful, more button up, and you got to manage the risk that you're taking as well. Cause we can't get across our different vehicles. We can't be overly exposed to one, to one market, to one opportunity set. So we've got to be very thoughtful about how we make investments. But ultimately it's been something we've been working on from a standpoint of actually institutionalizing the organization. It didn't happen overnight. It's taken many years and it's taken, you know, adding a lot of new individuals. So as we sit here today, I mean, go back to 2010, January to 2010, you know, we had as an organization, I mean, we could probably fit our whole entire team in the a large SUV as we sit here today. You know, we have over, you know, 250 corporate team members. Obviously, we have a large team out in the field at the different hotels we operate, you know, where we have over 3,000 team members. But as we sit here at the corporate office, we have about 250 team members. Those team members have been a big part of the reason we've been able to institutionalize and you know, reshape our organization. You're the first one that I've ever heard or that I know that does an investment committee meeting on a Friday. I've heard like Monday, we do ours on like Tuesday or Wednesday. Is that our cultural thing or was Friday just the day that worked out? Friday was, it was a reason to get everybody in the office on Fridays. I'm only joking actually, because <laughs> we did that way before the pandemic or before the remote work environment started becoming bigger. But no, the reason we chose Fridays is normally on Friday, we're not traveling. I spend a lot of days on the road. I would say most of the you know leadership team that's on our investment committee, a lot of them travel throughout the week. And we found that Friday was consistently a day where I, I would say 70% of the investment committee team members are able to be in the office when we have investment committee, which I think is much more effective where we're all sitting around the room together versus having everyone scattered and their focus. And that's the other part too, is Friday, there tends to be less activity so that you're, you have more, you know, more focus towards what's happening on those investments. And if we need to spend more time on an individual investment, we're not having to rush off the call or rush away from the meeting. And we're able to really spend the time to understand what's happening before we make that decision. Because these, you know, I'm a big believer when you make an investment, if it's making a loan, making a credit investment, if it's developing a hotel, buying a hotel, you make your money the day you make that investment. And so if you get it wrong, it's very hard to overcome those challenges. And usually, you know, when you get it wrong, it's usually you're at too large of a basis or you, you know, miss something in your underwriting on the market and so forth. And, and that's why we spend a lot of time going through each opportunity before we approve it. Are you touring every asset that you guys are investing in on the equity side? Yeah. So I will walk, I would say it's very rare to have not walked the asset before we've approved it. So I would say the majority of the time I have walked the asset right before we did the final approval. We have our investment committee process is set up where we have a pre-screen before we actually do the approval for the investment, where we say, these are the items we want to check down during due diligence, but it's conditionally approved based on final due diligence. And usually from the time period of conditional approval to final approval, I'll usually go walk those assets on the equity side for sure. 
And then on the, so if it's us acquiring a hotel, developing a hotel, usually I'll try to go walk the dirt or if it's a development deal or go walk the asset, if it's an acquisition. In the cases of the debt side, I walk a lot of those assets or try to. When we were doing the note purchases, I would say I probably walked 85% of those assets. So we would go and literally over, a, you know, when we were buying these portfolios of loans, I would literally over a 48, 72 hour period, we'd literally fly to four to five different cities or ever how many cities these assets were located to be able to go see each of the assets. So we're, we're really big on getting boots on the ground and really getting into the asset. And personally, I like to see them as well, just to make sure I understand what's happening and make sure we're not missing anything in our underwriting. Let's that let's transition then to a little bit about the type of assets that you're focusing on on the equity side and where you see as the most interesting opportunity over the next five years from a hospitality standpoint. Yeah. So I think for the just for the types of assets that we're focused on today, I would say in the near term, I think the most interesting trade that we've seen, and this has been happening over the last several months, and you look at some of the most recent acquisitions we've done, you know, we're seeing this trade where you can go out and buy these core, core plus type assets that normally you would see a, a much larger private equity shop either buying or some of the sovereign wealth funds, or even more importantly, the public REITs, which most of the public REITs are, you know, inactive on the buy side right now, buying these assets, these core, core plus assets. And so because, you know, there's limited buyers for these assets, in a lot of cases, you're able to get more of an opportunistic return profile for buying these, you know, high quality core core plus type assets, and that's what's been our focus. Um, that's the trade I think is going to continue to exist as the year goes on, especially if you're in that call it forty to hundred million dollar range of asset size. It seems like there's just less buyers around that area. And that's where it's been, uh, at least we've been having some success. You know, we just bought a Homewood Suites in Nashville, Tennessee, right next to Vanderbilt University. And we bought a Hampton Inn in Austin, right next to the University of Texas, Austin, and right there between the Capitol, right there next to downtown and the university. So it's very well located. And both those are assets that normally it would be a public REIT or, you know, one of the large private equity shops buying. But because of the dislocation in the market, we were able to take advantage of it. I think as you look out into going into 2024, I believe there's going to be an even more interesting opportunity just within hospitality because I do believe there's a lot of pressure across owners of hotel assets where you know they need to go renovate. They're having debt that's maturing. There's just less liquidity in the debt markets, obviously. And so that challenge of finding debt is going to not necessarily create, I don't want to say a distress trade. I call it more of a stress trade where individuals are having to sell assets because they're just looking at their, you know, what the returns they would get if they hold on and go refinance. And they're like, well, it's not that accretive to continue to pay these higher interest rates. I'm better off just selling the asset. And it may be that, you know, they're still making a little bit of money. Maybe they're losing money on the trade, but ultimately we're able, myself, you know, when I say myself, our team here, or even other organizations like us that we're competing against, are able now to go buy assets at a more opportunistic level than what they traditionally would be buying these assets at if we weren't in this dislocated environment. And so I think that's going to be the opportunity across pretty much all hotels going into 2024. I think hotels are uniquely positioned 
because there's such a lack of new supply. We didn't get impacted like some of the other property types. Like, you know, I keep talking about multifamily, but multifamily's got like a record amount of supply coming in 2024. Hospitality is on the lower side. I mean, we're, you look at demand growth, we're way outpacing any supply growth for the foreseeable future. So I, I just think we're very uniquely positioned as a property type or asset class. I think the acquisition strategy for us is to continue to find, you know, high quality select service, limited service, extended stay hotels that we can buy and leverage our operating platform, leverage our ability to execute on renovations or even, you know, rebrands to create value for, for our investments. How much emphasis are you placing on the actual real estate, whether it's the location, the building, the replacement costs versus the operating business? Because some of the stuff that I always get concerned about on limited service is like commodity stuff where another Hampton Inn can just pop up across the street and you're done. How do you look at that investing in the space? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's something you've got to underwrite. The supply pipeline is, I mean, that's a real concern, real issue. It's it's what has gotten a lot of people into trouble, especially in these tertiary or secondary type markets and locations. That's why we we tend to try to favor having you know strong brands that we're investing into. We really like the Hilton and Marriott brands, just given they have typically strong retail distribution channels. They tend to be the dominant hotels on the corners that they exist on. We also underwrite the factor that there could potentially be new supply. Fortunately, you can sort of see the new supply in most cases that's projected to be out over the next several years. It doesn't mean that hotels can't get billed during our hold period. You know, we're typically holding for five years, but we find if you're buying assets in a ticket, Austin or Nashville, the build time takes, you know, several years. So you're usually, you can see what's in planning. And so it's very, it's less likely that there's going to be a huge runup of supply but it, it is stuff that could impact you. And that's why we tend to, and like we always talk about internally, we like to invest in markets that are truly benefiting from being in a very, not only business-friendly environment where there's a lot of economic development, but also an environment where they're really benefiting from that migration story. So, you know, more people are migrating to that area. That's why we like the Southeast, Texas, and Arizona, because when you invest in those areas, ultimately you're going to have higher inflation because you're going to have you know more population growth and you're going to you know ultimately even if you do have some additional supply that you didn't underwrite that additional growth you're getting on the population side that in a lot of cases you're probably not capturing your underwriting will help offset some of that you know potential impact what what do you think about selling a hotel fully renovated versus selling a hotel that needs a renovation and selling into that market we were looking at buying a deal from Blackstone and this thing hadn't been renovated in like five or six years and, and looked like a disaster. And I was walking through and I'm like, maybe these guys have figured it out because I'm going to tell myself that I could do this thing for like, you know, $7,000 a key when it's actually going to cost me $15,000 a key. But I'll tell myself anything if I want to buy the hotel. And then, you know, I'm taking the risk, not them. What's been your strategy when you're looking at selling? Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because we've, we've noticed the same thing when you have uh, some of these larger private equity shops. Sometimes they tend to to hold off on renovations and they tend to enjoy the cash flows for too long. And then they try to sell the asset. And when you're in certain types of markets, that actually, that strategy works out really well. It's when you hit some of these 
periods of time where there's economic disruption that it, it could potentially blow up in your face depending on you know what's happening between you and the brand and you know what's happening with renovation needs and so forth so our strategy has always been because we're underwriting more as a you know call it a three to five year investment horizon so we buy assets with the idea that we're going to go in and execute renovation plans we're going to and when we execute the renovation plan you know all right we don't want to necessarily sell assets with large pips at the end of our um, cycle of ownership so in most cases we're doing everything we need to do in a lot of cases we're even doing more than we need to do and so you know it minimizes the pip so when someone's looking to buy the asset they can really value it off the cash flows that we're selling it off of and not having to factor in the renovations on the flip side i do think there is some advantages to the way some of these larger private equity shops have executed where they go and you know sell it and there's the unknown question well how much is the pip going to be because you know when you have a pip that's you know call it five to seven thousand a key well if it's five thousand a key or seven thousand a key it probably doesn't move your purchase price that much but when you have a pip that's potentially because where i've seen it in many cases play out where you know you have a third party saying the pip's only going to be 25 a door but you're looking at it saying well i think the pip's going to be closer to 35 40 50 a door well that that differential of 15 to 20 a door could really move your underwriting and could you know make could take you from in a lot of cases it could take you from having the deal size it could take you from having double digit returns to having single digit returns pretty quickly too so what are some of the kind of trends and areas of new investment that you're seeing in hospitality that might surprise people that you're actually taking a look in? I mean, there's so much emphasis put on experiential hospitality. I know that's not normally where you've played, but I'm wondering if there's like a little segment or something that you're spending time on because you think it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing. I would say there's nothing necessarily unique that other groups aren't already looking at from a hospitality perspective. I think we're probably. I mean, one thing that we're starting to spend more and more time on, just because you've seen so many new brands created for this, is the you know budget. I call it the budget extended stay or the you know lower tier extended stay brands, and we've been looking and studying that space for the last call it six to nine months. And, you know, we're, we're definitely intrigued. We own several extended stay hotels. We get the benefit and we get the benefit of not only there, we appreciate the benefit of owning those assets because we see it firsthand, but we get the strategy there and it's just trying to figure out, is it something worth doing? But we also, on the flip side, we worry, is that space getting way too crowded because you have so much saturation across not only different brands because every major franchisor now has launched a brand or is launching a brand that sort of satisfies that segment. But then you have so many groups that are chasing that space as well now. So the, you know, the secret is sort of out and there's nothing, I would say there's nothing that we feel like we're early to that's not already out there in our space. So that's, that's sort of where we sit right now. Are you spending any time on converting big box old hotels to multi or maybe an office conversion to hotel we're not i mean we've seen obviously we're seeing groups work on that we've ta- we've on the financing side we have we are doing some of those projects on the financing side as we speak we're talking to groups about it we've looked at 
buying, you know, we've bought some office loans. We're looking at buying more office loans where potentially they could be conversions, you could argue, at a later date to other use. That's not been a strategy that we've executed on or we see that is, you know, scalable for our platform today as we sit here. So I want to go back to the business side. There's been a lot of transactions on the management company side. A friend of mine recently sold a piece of his investment company. How do you think about the different verticals that you have and potentially breaking them off or using one to acquire another business? We're probably more on the, if we can make new investments. We've been looking at trying to add new platforms that we can bolt on to our existing platform that can help be accretive to our ability to grow assets under management. So we haven't necessarily you know, looked at the idea of selling off a piece of our business. So we're not interested in necessarily going out and selling our, our property management platform or development company or, or our investment business. We view it as it's all part of our ecosystem. And we've been looking to leverage what we have in our ecosystem to potentially add other pieces, you know, if it's growing it organically or even going and buying other businesses that are out there today where, you know, potentially we may buy another hotel management company that becomes part of our property management platform or us going out and buying a management platform or even a development company or, or whatever it is that's focused even outside the hospitality industry. So we've been looking at a lot of different acquisition opportunities. And so we're looking to really, to your question, leverage what we have internally, potentially, you know, as currency to go acquire more. So I asked all the guests on the podcast, the same closing question, out of all the hotels in the world that you visited outside of your portfolio, what's your favorite hotel? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. I think the, you can pick more than one if you want. Yeah, it's okay. I could, I could name many different assets that are probably pretty special to me. I think the, you know, the Ritz reserve in Dorado beach, always love going to that property. Federico Stube junior, who's, you know, priest of companies. He's, we've partnered together on many projects uh, and so I'm a big fan of his and they did an incredible job in developing that hotel. So I'm a big fan of that hotel and that's a place I love to, to go there with my family and so forth. I would say outside of that hotel, I always love you know, going out to, you know, the Montage and Laguna Beach. That's a great asset as well. It's very special. And there's a lot of other assets across the world and across the US that I love going to. But those are probably two that quickly come to mind that when I go to those assets, I'm always, you know, pretty excited about, you know, staying there. Would you guys ever look at financing a major five-star resort project like that? Like either one of those? It's a great question. We've looked at them in the past. We've always struggled. I think it would be if we were helping someone go in and acquire, you know, one of those types of assets where they're buying it at a, just a really good basis because we're in the middle of COVID or in the middle of uh, the GFC. I think that's probably would be an entry point where we'd be interested in, you know, jumping into that piece. Now, with that said, you know, we haven't necessarily been financing five-star hotels, but we have been financing a lot of these Margaritavilles that are being developed. Like there's one being developed down in Fort Myers Beach. There's a Margaritaville that's being built in Texas that we're, you know, working towards doing a construction loan on. There's one in South Padre Island where we did the, you know, renovation or the acquisition and, and subsequent renovation to that asset to convert it to a Margaritaville. So we've been leaning into some of those types of assets, but we've not 
gone into true five-star type hotels. Those things are amazing. Have you seen the RV version of the Margaritaville? Yeah, they are super amazing. And yeah, I've seen the RV version. It's it's crazy what's what's what they're doing there. So it's wild. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank mm-hmm. you.